today we think about especially the crucifixion of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. The crucifixion, it was something that the Persians invented. It's a horrible way to torture a person. It was designed to torture a person and prolong his life before death. It was never meant to extinguish a life immediately, but to have the prisoner suffer the worst possible kind of torture before he died. The Romans picked up on it. In fact, they were the ones that sort of made it widespread around the empire. It is estimated that the Romans, uh, even before the time of Jesus Christ, crucified about 30,000 different prisoners. And many times they would hang crosses on the roadside so that as you would go from town to town, you would see prisoners hanging on the cross to remind you, don't mess with Rome. This is what will happen. Many of these who were crucified were patriots, insurrectionists, the Roman called them, because they would fight against the agenda of Rome. Many patriots, well-meaning people who wanted to free the Jews from oppression were crucified. And yet, of all the 30,000 people, only one of them is remembered. One of them is remembered named Jesus Christ because He died for a different reason, and that is to free humanity from their sin. And so on this day, we remember Him. As the Scripture says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. You would expect when somebody is crucified, a death like that, that on the cross somebody would spew out profanities. At least the two thieves on the cross did, didn't they? You'd be angry. Such a, an excruciating death you think would even warrant such expressions such as, get me off of this thing or cursing to the very last minute. And yet Jesus Christ on the cross, the first thing He said, and we read it just a moment ago, was, Father, forgive them. The second thing Jesus did was to turn to a thief who said, hey, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, hey, don't worry. Today you'll be with me in paradise. The third thing that Jesus said was to His own mother to take care of her after His death. And He gave John the permission to take care of her. Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. Up until this time, Jesus, when He talked to God, addressed Him as His Father. Then something happened in this whole crucifixion scene. A darkness flooded the land. And for the first time ever in the entire life of Jesus Christ, Jesus did not call God His Father. But He addressed Him as God because something was happening. In Matthew chapter 27, we read these words, beginning in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard it said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. Now, if we read all of the crucifixion events at one setting, it seems as if it goes by fairly rapidly. 
You can read it really quickly. You would think, oh, this thing took about an hour. But actually, it was a prolonged period of time that took most of the day. Even though Jesus died fairly rapidly for a victim of crucifixion, it took the bulk of the day. Here's the scenario. At nine in the morning, Jesus was taken from the hall of judgment to this place called Calvary. His hands were spread out. Spikes were driven through His hands, through His feet, and He was raised up on a cross. Then He uttered three sayings upon the cross till 12 noon. He hung there for three hours. Then, at 12 noon, when the sun was at its peak, it says darkness came over all of the land. And for three hours, the land around where Jesus was crucified was in total, absolute darkness. This is the first miraculous sign at the crucifixion. Others would follow. It's odd that darkness covered the land. This was a physical darkness. When Jesus was born, do you remember what happened? It was bright. Even in the night sky around Bethlehem, the angels came and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they had words of rejoicing that the Messiah would be born into the world in Bethlehem. It was a glorious day filled with light. But here it is a time of absolute darkness. Uh, people have conjectured as to what this was. Maybe it was a sandstorm, sort of like what we have around here. Uh, maybe it was an eclipse of the sun, but we know from the astronomical charts that that's just not possible during that time of the year in that part of the world. This was a supernatural darkness sent from God, maintained by God for three hours that would cover the entire land. In fact, it's not just recorded in the Bible. You may be interested to know that ancient historians have recorded this. For instance, one of the church fathers from Egypt named Origen cites a historian who speaks about this darkness that covered a large portion of the Middle East. Even Tertullian said to another pagan Roman, he said, this thing that happened, which your history books record and have preserved into this very day, a widespread darkness. Now, there's a lot of different ways to look at this darkness. Why darkness? Why three hours of pitch black darkness over the whole land? Well, you could look at it as a darkness of secrecy. You see, whenever the high priest wanted to atone for sin, he would go in once a year on Yom Kippur, and in total darkness, in the Holy of Holies, he would offer the blood of the slain lambs of Israel for the atonement of their sins. In making that transaction, he was alone in that place. Well, here we have the greatest transaction ever enacted in history. And he is alone with his father making that deal that would take away our sins. But then also, it's a darkness of wickedness. Darkness covered the land, and the Bible looks at darkness not only as literal, but has a spiritual meaning behind it. For instance, in the beginning when God created the earth, darkness was over the face of all the earth. And God removed the darkness and the first thing He said was, let there be light. The Bible talks about walking in darkness. Speaking about living a sinful lifestyle apart from God's will. Uh, the devil is called the prince of darkness in a spiritual sense, ruling the sinful hearts of men. This here is the hour of darkness. When Jesus, the light of the world, is put upon the cross, why? Because the rulers of darkness would like to extinguish that light. 
But then it was also a darkness of judgment. I found it interesting in the Babylonian Talmud, which is a series of books written by the Jews, the rabbi said that whenever God wants to judge the world for an extreme sin, He will darken it. And I think the Scripture would agree with those rabbis. The ninth plague in Egypt was what? Darkness. Darkness that covered the land. In the book of Revelation, when God sends His judgments upon the earth, the fifth bowl that God pours out is a bowl of judgment or wrath upon the throne of the Antichrist. And it says His kingdom is covered in darkness. Of course, this is the most wicked act ever committed. In the book of Acts, Peter said, you by your wicked hands have crucified and slain the Messiah. And so this is the darkness of judgment upon the land. So there's a physical darkness. But there's also, secondly, a relational darkness over the Lord. Even as there is a physical darkness over all of the land, Jesus Himself feels the pain of separation when He cried out with a loud voice, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? When it says He cried out, it means He cried out. And in Greek, it means He cried out. That's exactly what it means. It wasn't a little statement. My God, my God. He cried, and the Greek word is a guttural scream or the roar of a lion. Now think of it. Jesus said three things before 12 noon. Father, forgive them. Today you'll be with Me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Then there was darkness. There was silence for three hours. Nothing was said on the cross. Then suddenly this earth-shattering scream was heard from the cross. This guttural vociferation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a sad word, isn't it? Forsaken. Rejected. Put out. Listen how the Amplified Bible puts it. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me, leaving me helpless, forsaking and failing me in my time of need? Do you know what it's like to be forsaken? Some of you do. Some of you have gone through the pain of a divorce where you've had a spouse say, I'm out of here. I don't want you anymore. I don't love you anymore. I don't ever want to be with you. Or a friend or a child who has left home. And you feel abandoned. You feel rejected. But nobody here knows what it's like to be abandoned by God. That is a pain none of you ever have to face. In fact, one of the reasons Jesus was temporarily separated from the Father as the sin of the world was placed on Him, your sin and mine, is so that you never would have to be separated ever again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is said that Martin Luther, when reading this, was so puzzled by it that he went away in seclusion for several days to figure out what this meant, and he came back even more confused. This whole idea that Jesus would be separated from His Father. Now, this had never happened before. In a sense, Jesus was separated. We talked a little bit about that last night at communion, didn't we? Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, Philippians 2, He emptied Himself and He came to this earth. He divested Himself of the prerogatives of deity, of the glory He had with the Father. And yes, in a sense, there was a gradual separation happening already with the disciples. More and more, Jesus was growing lonelier. He's in the upper room with twelve. One of them, Judas, is a traitor. And so he gets up off the table and leaves. And then there was the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus brought His disciples and they're sawing logs over in one side of the garden. 
And he has to wake them up. Even Peter, James, and John who were with them were snoring away and Jesus had to wake them up and said, couldn't you even watch with me one hour? Then he was betrayed by Judas. Then finally, Peter denied him. And then he's on the cross and there's only one disciple, John. All the others had fled. But never had Jesus been separated from His Father. He even said, though everyone forsakes Me, yet My Father is still with Me. Until now. And He doesn't say Father, but it's My God. My God, why have You abandoned Me, leaving Me helpless and forsaking Me? Now, what's going on here? Well, somehow there is a separation going on. As Isaiah predicted, God would lay upon Him the iniquity of all of us. Your sin, my sin, was laid on Jesus at that moment. And you know, it says in Habakkuk that God is too holy and pure to look upon evil. And it could be that in a sense, the Father turned from His Son and Jesus felt the separation He had never felt before. And He cried out in a strong voice, why have you forsaken me? When I gave my heart to Jesus Christ way back in 1973, I was in a little bedroom and I was thinking about this transaction, this salvation thing. And I think, okay, God sent His Son who was perfect, holy, and just to die for me and I'm a creep. And He wants to give me His eternal, everlasting life free of charge and He wants me to give Him my life which is sinful. And I thought about all this and I said, God, excuse me, this is not a smart deal. Now for me, it's a great deal. I'd be an idiot to pass it up. For you, it's not that bright. Why would you give perfection in exchange for such sin? The Son was separated momentarily so that you would never have to be separated from God. Ever. It happened. The sin was laid upon Him so that He could take all of our lives and make them His. So it's maybe not a great deal for God losing His Son, seeing His Son suffer, but what a great deal for us. That's why this is called Good Friday. That's why we celebrate even this death because of what this death means, this separation. Then, finally, there was a spiritual darkness over the leaders. Physical darkness over all the land, supernatural. Relational darkness over the Lord, a spiritual darkness over the leaders. Listen to what they say. Let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come down to save him. In another gospel, they say, well, let's see if he gets off the cross. Come on, get, on, get down, get off the cross. Let's see if you really have power. Now, here is Jesus fulfilling prophecy, quoting Psalm 22 which is a psalm all about the suffering Messiah. A supernatural darkness has covered the land. That didn't happen every day. That would be some kind of, hello, sign. They didn't pick up on it. After he dies, the veil of the temple is torn. People get up from the graveyards and start walking around. So Jerusalem turns into night of the living dead. And they don't get it. You see, there's something more profound than even physical darkness and relational darkness, and that is spiritual blindness. Spiritual darkness that covers the soul. 
We see it every year. We see it at Easter time. We see it at Christmas time. We see people wax religious, but they're just insensate and blind to this whole season. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus wants you to have everlasting life when people don't see it. It's like, yeah, heard that, been there, done that, and they move on. I want to close with something that I found in a book about this event. Because Jesus being separated and crying out to His Father during this time of darkness means something to everyone who's here today who might experience sadness, loneliness, isolation, pain in their lives. And I don't need a show of hands. I would say, how many people have ever experienced sadness, loneliness, isolation? If we were all honest, we'd all raise our hands, both of them. This author says, the most gut-wrenching cry of loneliness in history came not from a prisoner or a widow or a patient. It came from a hill, from a cross, from a Messiah. My God, my God, he screamed, why have you abandoned me? Never have words carried so much hurt. Never has one been so lonely. Over in the temple, the crowd quiet says, the priest receives the goat, the pure unspotted goat. In somber ceremony, he places his hands on a young animal. As the people witness, the priest makes his proclamation. He says, the sins of these people are upon you. The innocent animal receives the sins of all of the Israelites. All of their lusting, adultery, cheating are transferred from the sinners to this goat, to this scapegoat. He is then carried to the edge of the wilderness and released, banished. Sin must be purged, so the scapegoat is abandoned. Run, goat, run! The people are relieved. Yahweh is appeased. The sin-bearer is alone. Over on Skull Hill, the sin-bearer is again alone. Every lie ever told, every object ever coveted, Every promise ever broken is on His shoulders. He has become sin. God turns away. Run, goat. Run. The despair is darker than the sky. The two who should have been one are now two. Jesus, who had been with God for eternity, is now alone. The Christ, who is an expression of God, is abandoned. The Trinity is dismantled. The Godhead is disjointed. The unity is dissolved. It's more than Jesus can take. He withstood the beatings, remained strong at the mock of the trials. He watched in silence as those He loved ran away. He did not retaliate when insults were hurled at Him, nor did He scream when nails pierced His wrists. But when God turned His head, that was more than He could handle. My God! The wail rises from His parched lips. The holy heart is broken. The sin-bearer screams as he wanders in the eternal wasteland. Out of the silent sky comes the words screamed by all who walk in the desert of loneliness. Why? Why did you abandon me? This author says, I can't understand it. I honestly cannot. Why did Jesus do it? Oh, I know, I know. I've heard all the official answers to gratify the old law, to fulfill prophecy. And those answers are right. They are. But there's something more here. Something very compassionate. Something yearning. Something personal. What is it? I may be wrong, but 
I keep thinking of the diary of a very lonely woman who wrote, I feel abandoned. Who is going to love me? I keep thinking of the parents of that dead child or the friend at the hospital bedside or the elderly in the nursing home or the orphans or the cancer ward. I keep thinking of all the people who cast despairing eyes toward the dark heavens and cry, why? And then I imagine him. I imagine him listening. I picture his eyes misting and a pierced hand brushing away a tear. And although he may offer no answer, though he may solve no dilemma, although the question may freeze painfully in midair, he who also was once alone understands. You may be going through a very, very dismal, lonely time this Easter. You might be looking around saying, gosh, there's Easter lilies and people are singing and they're happy. But I'm not. I'm alone. I'm in despair. God knows. God listens. More than that, God cares. And God may be allowing this for whatever reason to suit His purposes, His glory, and your highest good. I don't know. But I know God cares. I also know this. It's temporary. You see, there are people who make it through this life happy, joyous. They've got everything. And then they die and are separated forever. You will never be separated forever. For God said, I will never, no, never, no, never leave you or forsake you. One day you will be with Him. And you will understand. And though you don't understand now, God does. And God sympathizes with you in your time of trial. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank You this morning for a few short minutes where we could be together to discuss the greatest act of love ever demonstrated to us, to this world, when hands stretched out with nails in them and you said, Father, forgive them. When Jesus was separated and there was anguish. And thank You, Lord, that because Jesus was separated from You, that we never have to be separated from You. That because Jesus was in darkness for that period of time, we can live and walk in Your light. The light of life Thank You, Lord, that You make that which is dark into light before us. And I pray for broken, lonely hearts who've come today. And I pray, Father, that You would help them. That You would comfort them. That You would draw near in this time of desperate circumstances. Father, we would also pray for those who have gathered, who have been invited by friends, or have come because of the season. We're so thankful that You've drawn them. But Father, we pray today that if perhaps they're lonely and they're desperate because they're not at peace with God, they don't know the forgiveness of sin, that, Lord, You'd be their Lord, Savior, and Master today. And in this attitude of prayer, I'm going to ask, I'm going to give an invitation. If you would like to know that your sins are forgiven, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, that if you died, you were to go to heaven, if you're not certain that you have that assurance before God, but you want to know that, and you want to surrender your life to Jesus right now, I'd like you to raise your hand. And I'll pray for you as we bring the service to an end and as we sing. Just raise it up. God bless you. And you up front. Both of you here up front on the side. Anyone else? Just raise your hand up so I can see it. And I'll pray for you. Over there in the middle, to, to my right.
Anyone else? Raise it up now to say, Lord, here's my hand. Save me. Cleanse me. God bless you. Over to my left in the back. Anybody else? Over there in the middle toward the back? Two of you. Way in the back. I see your hand. I see your hand, young man, over there. God bless you. And you right up front. And you, young lady, over here to the right. And you, sir, up here. Again, up in the front. Father, for all these right now who have raised their hands, we thank You, Lord, that You've brought them today. That there has been an appointment from eternity past and that You have kept Your appointment and You brought them here to keep that appointment as well. Thank You, Lord, that You have shown them that You love them and that You're willing to forgive them just like You did 2,000 years ago when You said, Father, forgive them. We pray, Father, for each one who's raised their hand that they would be strengthened and their roots would go deep into Your soil of love, that they would grow spiritually, that they'd experience Your answers, Your hope, Your peace, and Your fellowship with them forever. If your hands are raised, or you did raise your hands, right where you are, ask Jesus to be your Lord. Just say wherever you are sitting if you raised your hand, Lord, I give You my life. I surrender to You right now. I realize, I admit, I am a sinner. And I ask You to forgive me. I'm sorry for my sins. Thank You that Jesus paid the price for my sins. Write my name in Your book of life. I surrender, Lord. I'm Yours. I'm Your disciple. In Jesus' name, Amen.